people really understand that what they're really trying to create, it's really easy for them to be more encouraging and more hopeful and more positive with people. And it's also easier for them to eliminate a bad apple. From Tallahassee to the Keys and everywhere in between, this is Education Elevated on the FLCMAA Podcast Network. What's the best way to create a customer service culture? Scott Blanchard believes that taking care of your employees is a great first step, but it hinges on employee passion and creating a trusting work environment. Good morning. How are you all today? I'm good. I, uh, God, it's beautiful down here. I'm in trouble when I come to a place like this. I love to golf. I love to fish. I love boats. And I love the air down here. I, uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to, just to be here. Um, I'm also excited about the, you know, speaking to you all as, as club managers. I'm, I'm just a huge customer and fan of club management. I went to hotel school at Cornell and uh, graduated many years ago. I spent years in uh, food and beverage operations. And then um, in the early 90s, I, I uh, went back to graduate school and went to work for our, our family business at that point, so 25 years ago. And I've been working with company after company around the world, helping them accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish you know, through people. And uh, there's no place you know, more evident or more required in the club business than getting things done through people. I mean, every, every problem you ever deal with has hair on its head, as my wife says, right? I mean, it's always related to, uh, to people. I'm, I'm really heavily involved out west in the California Restaurant Association, so I, I also really understand um, it's not easy to uh, create a great experience today and actually uh, make money doing it, for sure. So we're gonna get into a lot of stuff today kind of related to that. Um, so I'm excited, I hope you are too. Um, it's a funny, I, I almost never uh, have spoken without being preceded by my father, you know, Ken Blanchard. I'm sure many of you have read his, his books over the years. Um, he's still kicking, he just turned 80, and he came out with a couple books, so he's been running around for a long time, and he's an amazing, he's an amazing guy. Um, somebody asked me last night, like, they were fans of my dad, so they're like, what was that like, like being his son? And um, it was kind of weird, just a little weird. You know, it was, it was good. I felt like a, a, my sister and I, we felt like lab rats because we were like the experimental subjects um, in, our, in our family. Um, whenever I got in trouble, which was fairly often as a kid, um, I mean, punishment was we had to sit down at the kitchen table and explain why our behavior was incongruent with the stated family values. Um, <laughs> And the, uh, the values were clear. They were written on the wall. And they were, they, my parents behavioralized them during a, uh, you know, a, a family off-site meeting. And uh, it was, they were grueling conversations. And, and uh, it was often about the difference between my intention and then the impact of, of my actions. And my parents are idealists. So to them, like any, any kind of misstep had like, was pretty big. You know, that was like a you know, like if I got in trouble at school and I was just disruptive, it wasn't just about, you know, being a pain in the neck. It was about, you know, robbing kids of the opportunity to learn during that time that I, where I was a distraction. So it was, it was, it was interesting. Uh, I was just a kid that was, you know, trying to have fun and, you know, hang out with my friends. So it was, it, it, it woke me up a lot. Um, the reason I mentioned it is because what it took 
to get up from the table after one of those conversations was I used to have to explain to my dad, he say, Scott, where are you headed in life? So I had to come up with a pretty good you know, vision as a kid. For, and the first thing I would always say is like, well, I want to go to Cornell, you know, because I know you guys went, I'm fifth generation Cornell. So I'm like, if I go there, good things will start happening. So I'd like lay it on that, that way. Um, and then I know also I'd have to say something about, um, boy, I want to make the world a better place for having been here to kind of appeal to their, to their idealism. And I, I, so I'd lay it on thick. And then my dad would always say, he goes, that's great, you know, because vision is the key. Because if you don't know where you're going, any, any path's going to get you there. So that's, that's really great that you have a vision. But we've been talking today about your behavior. And so your behavior seems to be moving in that direction. But the vision you just laid out is moving in this direction. So exa exactly when and how is this behavior going to deliver you to that vision that you just put out? And that's kind of the essence of what I've been working on for, for years and we'll talk about today is what's the vision in terms of what you're trying to achieve? Hopefully you're pretty clear. I'm going to encourage you to be crystal clear, crayon simple. That's the first piece. But then the second piece is, is your behavior and the behavior of everybody in your organization, in your club, is it actually lined up to deliver what you're hoping for or is there some disconnect? And what's interesting is around the disconnect, that's where we get into, into trouble. And there's all kinds of things that can disconnect us from actually the behavior lined up in the right direction. And, um, and so we're going to kind of explore some of that stuff today. Make sense? Yeah. All right. So um, as I was preparing for this morning, I also had one other thought I've been kind of working on kind of lately. Um, so I'm going to share some stuff with you today that... Um, I didn't know like five or six years ago. And there's a couple of things I'm going to share that I didn't know even like two years ago. Um, and so I came up in the 80s. Uh, I, I worked first in operations in the early 80s. I worked for a great hotelier named Bob Small, who went on to take over Disney down here. And he was a Marriott guy, amazing guy, opened up a ton of five-star hotels. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about leadership. Um, what was interesting is I learned a lot of stuff in the 80s and early 90s about leadership. And um, what's happened over the last you know, 25 years in our business is what we've come to know to be true has changed, right? And uh, so has anybody in the room had a, um, like a, a heart procedure that like stents or, or any kind of a heart procedure that saved your life or the life of a, of a loved one? Isn't it great? I've got, a, I've got a titanium knee. Totally cool. You know, wasn't available. Wasn't available, you know, in the early 90s, you know, really, or, or late 80s. Anybody else been, been touched by, by cancer and had somebody cured in your, in your family? Right? So, so, so thank God medicine has evolved, you know, since the 80s. Because there's a lot of things that are, that are happening right now that you would have been a goner if you'd gotten it back in, in the 80s. I mean, it's amazing. My father himself, you know, was saved from cancer and also from a heart issue. And has two hips. And so, but for, you know, modern medicine, he'd be in a wheelchair, maybe not with us, right? And so one of the things I want you to think about today is there's things that have evolved, you know, in our field, which is very similar to medicine. So there's a lot of stuff that I've, we've just learned a couple years ago, and a lot of it's related to people. What makes people tick? How can you get people engaged? What are the conditions that are required for human beings to perform at their best? And what are the things that we may do that we thought worked in the 80s that actually don't work very well today, right? 
um, because there's some really interesting kind of new things that have changed a lot of what I say. Um, and a lot of it hasn't changed, but, but there was things that I might have said 10 or 15 years ago that I kind of knew were right, right? But now because of functional MRI and because of the study of neuroscience and the study of motivation, we actually know what's right. And what's crazy is that the best companies in the world are using some of this new knowledge you know, to make things happen in their organizations in a different way than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Some of them we get a little worried about, right? Um, I've been looking for a, a new mattress recently. You know, just on my phone looking around for different mattresses. And uh, boom, all of a sudden, on my Instagram feed, you know, and on my Facebook, which I barely look at, um, mattress ads are coming up all over the place. And so there's some kind of crazy things. And what's interesting about it is, you know, Google's behind it, of course, and they're sort of the big, the big black, black hat that we're worried about. But what's interesting is they've catered and changed the message based on what I'm looking at this week to actually you know, affect my behavior. And I bought a mattress on my phone yesterday. And so there's some really interesting stuff, and some of it's fiendish, but some of it's really interesting because they were able to use a lot of the new technology, but also, you know, sense of who I am to actually get to me as a human being. So um, I'm gonna get into some of that stuff today. So what, what I'm gonna present is I think you, there's a pretty good possibility that you could, you, you could learn one or two things today that could significantly change the way you think about your staff that could cause you to behave differently, maybe invest differently or prioritize things differently that would and could possibly create a much better result based on you being here this morning. So that's my goal, okay? So sound good? All right, so here we go. All right, so first thing I wanna do is I wanna get you guys talking about what's happening. Here's my agenda. Um, I already talked about why I love the club business. Um, I just became a global member at Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester. This is like my first season up there, and I'm like, I really love the club business right now. I'm so excited, I can't stand it. I, I spent summers up in the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, and uh, what an amazing place you know, that is. So I just I love the vibrancy and the excitement of a great club. So I, I just love it, and I'm here to help around that. Um, so we're going to dig into why management is so important and how it works, keys to management success, and then we're going to get a little bit into what to do first, you know, second, and third. Um, so I'm hoping today, my biggest hope today is that it's going to be useful, that there's something you're going to come out with and, and, and it'll be useful and you're going to be like, wow, isn't that cool? Um, and the other thing that's interesting is it's not going to really require that you probably spend any more any money. It's just a matter of what are you doing with the resources that you have that you're already employing, okay? All right, so love and worry. Um, in groups of two or three, however you're situated, I'd like you to spend a few minutes talking about what are the things that you worry about in your club and what are the things that you love about the club industry? Two quick discussions. The first one is, you know, one or two or three things that you worry about. And I encourage you to like really talk about the things that you worry about that you might not say very often, or what are the things that are really getting in your way? Because it's not getting any easier, okay? It's a little different down here. We're in the land of $15 minimum wage coming straight at us in, in Southern California. 15 bucks, 
Uh, unbelievable um, what, what that means. So there's a lot of things to worry about. So whatever you're worrying about, talk about those things. And then the second part of the discussion is what are the things that you love about the, the, the club business, what you loved before and what you still love about it, okay? So I'm going to give you six minutes to talk about this. Let's start with worry. So what are the things that you discussed? Who'd like to, who'd like to share? What are you worried about? Things you're concerned about? Okay, staffing and labor. Nice. Okay. So, so labor, big issue. Finding people. How many are worried about finding good people? Okay. Cool. And keeping, finding them is great. Oh, we're going to talk about that a lot. Yeah, that's, that's the keeping them is, is for sure, um, you know, a challenging deal. Because it just kills you to lose somebody, especially somebody that's good. And, uh, or especially somebody that's like, you lose, right when they get to where you need them, then they leave. Right? Drives you crazy. What else? Yes. Aging membership. Aging membership. Perfect. That's a big, big deal. I had one back there first. What was? Climate. Climate. Like hurricanes and that kind of like, like the climate. Okay, perfect. All right. Um, what else? Governance, like, w within your club or, or uh, like in the larger United States? Uh, <laughs> board, board dynamics, yeah, a bunch of dentists telling you what to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, that always works out great when the dentists redesign, lead the redesign of the golf course, right? So, perfect. Okay, what else? Insurance. Insurance? What else? Is that it? Come on. Declining golf participation. Declining golf participation. Okay, what else? Yes. Generational differences. You bet. What else? Hey, Ed, one right here. Setting the bar high, okay. You'd want to hear yes. Economic downturn. Okay. Like when's it gonna happen again? Okay. What else? Is that all? Yes. Capital funding. So my club used to be like 80 grand to join, now it's like nine. And it's like the money, there's that whole stream is gone throughout so many places like that whole big equity piece is gone, you know, right? Or changed, for sure. What else, anything else? Yes. The financial, okay, perfect. Okay. 
All right. Staffing and labor, aging membership, climate governance, um, insurance, declining golf participation, generational differences, setting the bar high, economic downturn, capital funding, financial forecast, all these different things. Okay? Perfect. What about things that you love about the club business? You said we love to worry. You love to worry. <laughs> what else? What do you love about it? Relationships. What else? Family oriented. Family oriented. For any of you can see this, I, I, uh, I have terrible handwriting so I can disguise what a bad speller I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, uh, what else? Diversity. Diversity. Okay. All right, just shout them out. Repeat that. Incentives. Incentives. Perfect. Absolutely. People have some of their best times at their club, right? Never boring. Never boring. That's true. What else? Their high expectations. And meeting high expectations, it's a challenge for sure. A couple more. Things you love about the club business. Yes? Are colleagues in the business? Yep, perfect. Paycheck. Paycheck. Beautiful. All right, I got room for one more up here. You what? Lose money. Lose money? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, began with you love to worry. So do I. Um, relationships, family oriented, diversity, incentives, um, bringing joy to other people, never boring, meeting high expectations, kind of the challenge of that, your colleagues. You know, obviously you're getting, getting paid, and, and clubs are unique. I mean, you can really, um, it's not just P&L, because especially with an equity, you know, setup, there's a, there's a longer run view a lot of times, which sometimes can get in the way as well. So it's definitely a unique uh, business model. So um, we're going to dig into a bunch of the different things, but I, I kind of wanted to get out here at least what you worry about and what you uh, love. So when we look at the worries here, um, what are the ones, what are the things you can control? So there's, there's really two kinds of problems in the world. There's problems that you can actually control. There's some kind of a solution that you can actually bring to bear. You can affect it. There's other things that you can't control. So what are the things that you can control? Can we control staffing and labor? What do you think? I mean, not completely. There, there is an external labor force and dynamics that you can't control. But the only thing you can really control is who do you put on your payroll, ultimately. Um, we'll talk about, about that quite a bit. Because this is one that you can, it's a partial. But anybody under your, under your employee, you, know, you, have, you can control and you have a responsibility towards. 
So this is something that you can do this directly under your, your, you know, your responsibilities. What about aging members? Well, I'm a little creaky this morning. I'm getting a little older myself. I mean, you can't really control that. You can manage that. You can, you know, climate. Governance. Totally. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff that will be useful today because one of the biggest problems with, with governance is they are not exempt from the same things that are true if you're running a company that you own. And when members get in trouble, when a club goes down the tubes, it's fundamentally usually a governance issue. And you are the hired help. You're the one running the club. But at the same time, you know, there are great ways that you can, you can recover from that and you can kind of manage that. Insurance, you know, decline in golf participation, you know, generational differences. Those we'll talk about. They can, be, they can be managed both on the guest side, but also on the, on the staff side for sure. Um, setting the bar high, can you control that? That's a biggie. Economic downturn? No. Um, capital funding? You can, especially through value and the financial forecast. So there's things that are under control and things that aren't. So one of the things I want to kind of identify for you today first and we'll talk about is, is it, it's a great thing to think about, like, what are the things that you can actually can control within, within your environment, within your role? And worrying about those things and doing something about it is one thing. The other ones are, are difficult. I, I've learned I, I'm for sure that when there is a, 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 for, there's a downturn coming, right? When's it going to happen? How deep is it going to be? How's it going to affect the sector? You know, who knows, right? I'm, I'm sure that most of you have been around for a few of the downturns. No that they come in some form every seven to nine years. There's a big one about every 40 years. And what's interesting about downturns is different organizations behave differently. And it actually completely affects their trajectory long term. As the organizations that behave you know, smartly during a downturn, they actually survive and they gain market share. It's the one time you can gain market share. And so downturns are actually an opportunity rather than something to be, to be feared. Unless you're in a position where your firm is not, your organization is not stable, then it could be your end, right? But there, there's a really interesting kind of an idea. So the downturn, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so but the big focus is on what are the things that you can actually do. And as I said before, I'm going to bring some new light into staffing and labor and also what you and your management staff can do to make things happen. Because the only thing we can really control is who we put on the payroll and then how we lead and manage them once they work for us. And that is the crux of just about everything. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit, about why. So um, I wanted to, to uh, there's a guy up in, in Cleveland that I love. His name is John DeJulius, and um, we've been working with him recently. And he's got these five things um, around a customer-obsessed culture, which is the top piece. And I want to just kind of talk about these for just a second as a context for what I'm going to get into. Um, the first one is, is uh, product and service. So obviously, you know, clubs, you know, restaurants, every organization varies in terms of the, the product you have, the amenities that you have, basically, and the, service, the services you provide. Um, like, this is an amazing place, right? I was, I was just walking around this morning. It's, it's, it's like an amazing, you know, it's an amazing facility. It's an amazing history. Um, and, and so you can't totally 
affect that, but ultimately you need to keep it fresh and relevant and, um, and make sure that everything is, is meeting kind of the needs in the market. So the first piece is having that. It is not the end-all, be-all to actually your organization succeeding. Because um, the, the, what your members are looking for and what customers are looking for, probably more than anything, is based on the products and services you have, is consistency across all experiences. It's, it's, it's like the, one of the biggest things that drives value is do I have a consistent experience? If I go into the dining room or if I go into the golf shop or if, or if my family comes over for a meal or I bring guests on or whatever, is my service dependent on Jose being there? Or do I get a consistent level of service across the organization? Do I get good service when it's busy? Do I get good service in the shoulder season? Do I get great service in the summer even? Are there, is there consistency across all those experiences? Appropriate consistency. And that's, that's the fundamental thing that really, really matters. And it's one of the hardest things to actually make happen. So this is what people are looking for, is they're looking for a consistency across experiences. And like I'm, I'm a big, I, I travel a lot. I'm a big Marriott guy. There's no consi more consistent brand, in my opinion, across, across the country, from Marriott to Marriott. You know, it's just, it, it, they're very consistent in terms of the, the staff, the way they respond to crisis, the beds, the whole deal, right? And uh, some of the other companies are really great, but they have a little bit of lows, but they're just a really consistent group, and look where they've stood over all these years. So consistency really matters. I find a lot of airlines. We won't talk about airlines. <laughs> The only one that's consistent to me is Southwest, you know, and then you have to deal with Southwest's products and services, which is fine for short hauls, but it's not, you know, it's great if you're going for a couple hours, but they are just consistent and under pressure. It's amazing. I was, I was dealing with them recently and there was a big storm. They change their behavior, they change their planes, they change their routing, they adapt like nobody's business. Every time I fly an American and there's a big storm, they're like surprised. It's like, well, how did this happen? How's there a thunder shower in Chicago in the middle of summer? I can't believe it. You've got to be kidding me. And they get cranky about it, right? And they get cranky about it. You know, it's just, it's, it's terrible. So it's like the consistency, and I'm not looking for, for not being affected by storms, but how do you deal with people when they're hot and sweaty and tired? And at Southwest, they never waver. They are never, ever rude. You know, on the bigger airlines, you go into one plane versus another, and the crew either, like, they hold hands before, and they're like, okay, we're going to be a happy crew today. And the entire airplane is full with staff that's happy. And other days, the entire five or six flight attendants, they're cranky. There's never a mix. It's like we're, on, like, we're having a bad day, or we're having a good day. It's like they actually, because they, 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 they're related to each other during that day. Oh, God. So consistency across experiences. Ease of doing business. This is a huge deal. How many of you are shocked by the number of Amazon Prime boxes that end up on your doorstep or in the doorstep of your neighbors, right? So ease of doing business, huge, huge deal. A lot of clubs under extreme pressure around ease of doing business. Um, just it's a, it's a huge deal. The key there is doing business. If it becomes easy, people do more and the revenue follows, right? So, so ease of doing business from the eyes of the customer. Um, employees as club ambassadors, this is a huge deal. And this is what the research, people want two things. First of all, they want to, they want to service, they want staff that loves what they're doing, right? And they want staff who loves who they're doing it for. They love what they're doing. 
and they love who they're doing it for. And staff will sell out if they're being mistreated or they have a perception that they're being mistreated as quick as you can imagine, as you've seen. They love what they're doing and they love who they're doing it for. I'm going to talk about that later on, specifically as a measure. And then the last piece is personalizing the guest's experience. People want consistency, but they also want that personal touch. And it's kind of a tricky thing. You know, how do you deliver really consistent service, but you also get to know the, the member or the guest a little bit? Just do something that's a little more special, even, even engaging the appropriate level of banter or conversation. You know, nobody wants the waiter to sit down and have, have dinner with them, but having just the appropriate amount of personalization is a huge deal. And what's interesting is there's a science that I'm going to get into to personalization. What enables somebody to be able to look up and engage with a human being? Okay? They have to be at a certain spot to be able to do that. And one of the big questions is, are your managers and are you, are you creating the environment that causes people to be able to appropriately personalize their service? Or are they more on guard? Okay. So these are kind of the things that we're going to work on. The guy named John DeJulius, really, really interesting guy out of, of Cleveland that's been studying. This is all they do is work on customer obsessions. I'm just a big fan of his. So um, with that, I'm going to get into um, this is the part where I'm going to share some stuff that you maybe didn't you know, didn't know. I'm going to talk about great leadership and why it's so important, but more specifically how it works. Okay. So would anybody argue that really good leadership is, is critical to an organization's success? It's kind of like baseball, mom, right? apple pie. I mean, it, it's a good thing. And yet one of the things that happened, and this started about 20 years ago, is I get to work with all kinds of companies. And we were working with a large retail firm. Um, and we were doing great work with them. We, we, we do mostly management training. And we, we were, it was a huge account for us. We had trained several thousand managers. They were in a really competitive space. They were kind of in the precursor to what's become big box retail. And one day I get this, this uh, voicemail that the CHRO had been fired, and they basically gutted the entire staff. The account's gone. We're done. We're, we're out. right? And I was going to Detroit like twice a month for working with these guys. And I remember coming back, and I was like, God. What happened? And I get, they got a new CEO. They came in, and they basically went in a different direction, and they cut out you know, just about everything related to investing in their people. And I thought it was a stupid decision, right? I really did, because, because we were making a material business difference in their, in their company. We were changing the culture within the stores, and it was a time that they needed to. And so what's interesting 20, you know, 20 years later is the flashing blue light is not really flashing anymore. Right, so it was, it was, you know, it was, we weren't at Costco, you know, which is really one. It was, it was, it was, it was a, the flashy blue light company. And they pretty much have gone down the tubes as a result of that. And what they did is they missed an opportunity, kind of like Sears did, to actually reinvent themselves in the face of this crazy retail, you know, kind of a change. And so what's interesting is they made that decision. And what I've seen over time is I've seen organizations over time where some of them deeply invest in their people and they stay, they stay the course when things aren't well, working really well. And there's other ones that are more fickle or they actually stop investing in people because they see it as some kind of a controllable expense. And, and it's, it's amazing how the difference is. And what we believed is, you know, people that, organizations that continue to invest in their people, smart, right? Ones that don't, not so smart. But what I needed was I needed an argument that was actually going to convince 
the most important person, like in my life anyway, is how do you convince the cranky CFO? How do you convince the cranky CFO that investments in people really, really matters, right? So what we found in a lot of companies is they have a cranky CFO or somebody on their board or on their leadership team that, that either believes that people aren't important, right? Or that's, that's, that's hard to convince if somebody actually doesn't think that people are important, right? In every business, I don't care where you are, most of what you spend is on people. The other one, though, is they've realized that, you know, people are really important, but the investments we've made in training haven't resulted in much or in development. So it's not that I don't believe that people are important, but I believe that it's sort of like, you know, people are either bestowed with the ability to manage people or not, but, you know, those, those development efforts don't really work, right? Has anybody ever seen one of those two perspectives? People aren't important. Board members, you know, leaders, right? Or the second one is, you can't really change people. You can't really develop a team. So it's another perspective. So what I needed was I needed an argument that actually pointed out to both those perspectives. It's a little bit short-sighted, okay? So what we did is we looked at the interaction. I went to one of my, the guys that started the company with my father, really strong researcher, and I said, Dre, I need help. I need to convince this cranky CFO that investments in leadership is fundamentally critical. We need to continue to invest in staff. And I need to show exactly how it affects the bottom line. And it needs to be an argument that's not coming from me, but that in the language that a CFO, a cranky CFO, would understand. Okay? And um, so what we did is we went out and we started looking. And we basically looked at 210 studies. This is the part around the medical development. Leadership has been studied and studied and studied and studied for the last 50 years. Type in leadership in Harvard Business Review. Like 7,000 articles will come up. It's been studied a lot. And so what I wanted to do was say, what is the connection between leadership quality, employee success, customer success, and organization success? What is the connection? How does it work? Is leadership really important? If so, how specifically does it work presented in a way where we can actually convince the cranky CFO? Okay, interested? So here's, here's what we found. Um, the first one is there are actually five things. So there's two kinds of leadership that exist in every organization. One is strategic leadership, and the second is operational leadership. Strategic leadership is actually two things. One thing is it's messages. It's, it's information that is written down and communicated about where is this organization headed. It includes vision the culture we're trying to create with our staff and also with our members in your case, and also what are the two to three strategic imperatives that we're working on in the short term that are gonna help us deliver ourselves to that larger vision, okay? So they have to result in things you can put on the wall, and in the research, the degree to which they are crayon simple, they create power, okay? So that's one piece. The second thing is strategic leadership happens in a setting, and weirdly, we're in a perfect setting for it today. So strategic leadership exists anytime a leader or a group of leaders pull off the road and you think about the overall health and trajectory of your organization. And so today, sitting in a nice club, you're in that setting, right? You're not actually at work, you're actually thinking about reflecting on 
what's going on within your club. It's at the end of a busy season. So it's a perfect time to kind of think about and contemplate the future. What I'm hoping today is that maybe we'll create a sharpened vision, maybe some different components in your culture you're going to work on, and maybe a different strategy or two. So that's the first piece, strategic leadership. And what's interesting is strategic leadership in the research, all these arrows are connections, doesn't actually add directly value to your organization. The absence of it will get in the way. But what the research shows is that strategic leadership is the, are the things that actually, what happened there? Um, are the messages that animate and give purpose and give drive to employees and to staff and to management all the way down through. Um, because the next piece is called operational leadership. And operational leadership is what we do, what you do every day. You probably did some this morning, which are those activities, those thoughts and actions that you engage in, the way you communicate to either drive value directly to your customers or to your members, or the things that drive focus and value to your employees. And so what the research shows is that operational leadership is the linchpin of success in any organization, far and above. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this strategic leadership component is the only way you can really directly influence the bottom line is when you do something bad and you get caught doing it. And if you really want to create negative economic value, you cover it up for a while and then get caught covering it up. Okay. Anybody ever, does anybody have a Volkswagen diesel? Anybody have one of those cars that, yeah? So people love those cars, right? And then, and then they got, you know, basically Volkswagen got caught not only cheating the system, but then there turned out to be like this big concerted effort to actually do it worldwide. And so it was a big scandal. It's cost them billions of dollars. Okay, so when bad things happen in an organization, there's usually somebody called to account. And it's usually when you do something dirty or illegal or bad and get caught doing it that you really get into big trouble, right? So strategic leadership is one of those things that like, if you do it really well, people don't really know, <laughs> but it does animate everything that people that are making other things are happening. If you make a mistake or some kind, some kind of a controversy happens, it can have a direct impact. Now, a couple of things I wanna talk about first though, but before I continue. What we looked at were three different buckets and I want to define them. Employee work passion, I'll talk about a bunch. These are the set of conditions that cause an employee to be really turned on and engaged or not. Okay, they're opinions that people have about the organization they work for, the manager they work for, the relationship that they have with their coworkers and the job itself that they're paid to do. So they're opinions that have to do with, that develop attitudes which develop actions and behaviors. On the customer side, Customers are pretty simple, at least in the research. There's three sets of opinions that customers sort of engage in. The first one is satisfaction. How was my most recent experience? How was my steak tonight? How was my meal tonight? The second one is loyalty, which is to what degree am I going to come back? Right? Am I going to come back to the club for dinner? Or am I going to go somewhere else? Right? And then the third one is advocacy, which is the degree to which I'm going to say positive or negative things about the organization. What's tricky in a club setting is that once people join, and especially if they're in a place where they really need to go and want to go to 
the club on a regular basis and things aren't going very well, they can't just vote with their feet. I guess they can. They can, they can quit the club. But before they quit the club, they can cause a lot of trouble. And they can jump up and down, and they can talk to other members. And before you know it, there's a whole sewing circle going on. And, and so, so they, they actually, they're more likely to become disengaged or, or upset, but still there, right? Um, so it's, it's a real challenge if, if the sentiment moves the wrong way from a membership standpoint. Um, and then the piece up top I want to talk about for a second, when we started looking at success, how do you define success? There's this thing called the quad bottom line, which has become valid. The first one is financial results. Are you performing as, as expected? Different in a club environment, but nonetheless, you've got revenue that comes from membership. You've got all the revenue that comes from people spending money coming to the club. And you've got your costs you can control. How's, how are you doing related to that? Um, the second one is, and these are the, the other two pieces that are important of the quad bottom line. The, the second one is your employment brand. The reputation that you have among people that would be working for you. Employment brand. If you don't know what your employment brand is, go to Glassdoor and check it out. The words out on the street, you know, your club versus other clubs. Your employment brand really, really matters. You may be sitting here and not know even what it is. Really, really important to find it out. Because if you don't have a strong employment brand, the people that you really want working for you aren't even going to come in the door because they won't, they won't come work for you, right? You can affect your employment brand over time. Um, really, really, really important. The, uh, the customer, um, kind of your reputation within your customers. Are you a club of, or a provider of choice, which is the customer's opinion in every community? There's kind of a stack of clubs from top to bottom. Kind of where do you sit in there? And also, what are you known for? And then the last piece, which is really important, hard today, is are you, is your organization, your club, is it seen as a steward within your community or somebody that's actually getting in the way of doing good things in the community? So, so it kind of matters. This, this all started about 20 years ago, is you can no longer really easily get away with things you can get away with before. Company standpoint, you can't just make profit. So I watch a lot of golf on the weekends. See, we'll have energy company ads. What's the one thing you see in every single energy company ad? Care about the environment. Water, green grass, snow, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, who are they kidding, really? I mean, you know, but, but, but what's interesting is energy companies need to be seen as worthy energy company that's actually a steward in the planet. You know, I was just at um, HSBC, big bank, walking down the thing in Phoenix, look up on the wall. It was like this big water project. And here's this big financial institution, and they're spinning the story that they're actually all about you know, giving people around the world access to clean water. So why is everybody doing that? Feel good story. Feel good story. Why are there two women members at Augusta? You can no longer get away with the things that you got away with before, right? You can't, ha you can't do it. And so what's, there's a measure called public perceptions of trust in the organization and leadership. It matters. Okay, it actually, it actually matters. It connects to the bottom line because of the internet and because of corporate social responsibility 
and because of Me Too and because of all these movements that have happened is how we do business within our community really matters. And the clubs that are actually not getting with the times on that, they're getting in trouble. Um, because there's, you can't cover it all but because you're still a private club, but you still have to work through that. So there's four bottom lines. So here's the connections up here that really matter. Strategic leadership, as I mentioned, really important. Because the quality of your vision, of the values and culture you're trying to create within your organization and the strategies you engage in, those are the things that animate and provide value to your leadership. And your leadership has everything to do with your success because it creates the conditions that cause the employees to be totally in, one foot in, one, out, one foot out, or actually doing damage to your club. Okay? Isn't that great, paying people who are actually working against us? Have you ever seen that before? Boom. The customer devotion side really matters because the management has everything to do with the policies and the procedures and the ways that you're actually engaging with your members. And, and so this is a really huge linchpin. The one thing that's, that's most important up here, however, is the members, the customers, and the employees, they talk. They interact. And so the relationship between the employee and the customer really, really matters. And so what we found in the research is if the customers are completely excited and turned on, they do a significantly better job of taking care of the customers, not only delivering the service that they expect, but connecting with people and personalizing the service in such a way that it creates a lasting positive membership experience for that member or for that customer. When the, when the customers or the members are really happy and they're really devoted to the, to the club or to the organization, they actually create a safer, more effective work environment for the employees. So they have a huge imprint on the employees. So if the membership is cranky, the front line's job is worse as a result of that. So that dynamic is, is huge. So it's so strong, in fact, that if you want to find out what's going on with your customers, the research says just ask your frontline employees. And they'll tell you exactly what they're worried about and what they're complaining about and, what's, and what are things that, they, that are not easy to do business with. Where do they feel slighted? Really, really key. So this, this, this relationship is just is huge. It's just huge. Because your employees and your customers they're the two forces that drive all the economic value. So it's true in most clubs. How many of you have a situation where 100% of your revenue comes from your members or from your customers? Raise hands. Have you ever thought about that? 100% of your revenue comes from the members or the customers. Right? So, so, so right, there you go. And, and what's, so it's, 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 it sounds simple, but, uh, but a lot of times people forget, especially in a club setting, we can get so comfortable, you know, that pain in the neck member, it, you know, 100% of the revenue comes from the members. And so what's interesting is that revenue comes in a way that's actually really adds more value or sometimes has some cost to it. So one of our big clients is, is um, Vail Resorts, right? They're causing all kinds of trouble in the ski industry. God, they're just playing unfair. They do such a good job, they just crush everybody. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. You know, a few people in the local communities, they complain because the, you know, the big corporate group has come in. But it's amazing the amount of investment they make, the quality service, you know, just amazing. So they're one of our clients. One of the things that they found, they've been, they've been studying um, net promoter for a long time, right? 
because of her net promoter score. It's a measure of the degree which your customers are actually positive advocates for your business. So get this. If somebody rates Vail Resorts seven out of seven on a seven-point scale, like, like I love Vail and I've got no quibbles, that customer is seven times more valuable to Vail over their lifetime as a customer than a customer that rates them six out of seven. Did you get that acceleration? Seven out of seven, I'm in. I'm so into Vail. I live in New Jersey. I go to Vail every year. I'm not going to go to Aspen. I'm not going to go to Jackson Hole. I'm going to go to Vail. I'm going to bring everybody that I know to Vail. It's part of like who I am, right? Seven out of seven, seven times more economic value than somebody that's like, I love Vail. It's awesome. I go back there all the time. Occasionally, I go somewhere else, you know? I mean, and I've kind of figured out what works and what doesn't there. You know, I'm, I'm pretty in, but you know, I look around a little bit, but I'm, I'm pretty much in. The difference between those two is seven times more economic value over time. It's true in your club as well. Is your super members, the members that are all in, that don't have a single quibble, they're driving more economic value than the ones that have a quibble or two, okay? When we talk about the people that are hostages, like they're stuck and they're unhappy, right? The, we're the, you know, those people are doing more value, more damage than actually value inside the organization. But the acceleration that everybody needs to understand is the difference between six out of seven and seven out of seven is huge economic value. Because the, what the research shows is there's no resistance from the person to price or whatever to the person that's a super fan. In fact, they're on your side when problems come up. They'll make excuses for you if something happens once. And at the same time, they're, they're highly demanding, but people love them. So it's really, really key. So there's a huge difference in there. And, and, it, and that's the key, is finding out how do we get to that kind of huge difference. Vegas has known about it forever. They find out they're high rollers, the people that love it, that's, you know, and then what do they do? They start giving them free stuff, and before you know it, they're making crazy things happen. So seven out of seven versus six out of seven is a huge deal. Um, so there's an acceleration of customer value, of member value that comes from people that are really turned on and excited. And the same thing's true with employees. If you have an employee, that's all in, all in. They're gonna treat the club's resources like it's their own. They're gonna take care of the members like they're their good family members. All right, they're never gonna lie, they're never gonna steal, they're never gonna cheat, they're gonna be a good example, they're gonna drive you know, other people to behave better, and they're gonna stay for as long as they can, and if they can, they're gonna bring other people that are like-minded to the club, and you're gonna get more value out of that employee than you're gonna get out of four who are sitting there kind of in the middle of the road, okay? So what the research has shown us is finding out the formula for your all-in people is the key to driving the most value. And what I've experienced over time is when you go to a great restaurant, it's been in business for a long time, great club. You get it everywhere, top to bottom. It's like it precedes you. It's an honor to work there. And when you go to a place that's struggling, you know, the men's room is a little dingy. It's not as clean. You can just you can see through the housekeeping. I, I look around, you can see in the housekeeping and in the care and the way people behave and the snickering and the things that you see, you, you can see it if you look close enough. And those are the things that begin to affect you know, the experience. So, um, so what, what the leadership profit chain tells us is this really matters. Your vision and your culture and your strategic imperatives, this is central and fundamental. You can't control this. 
both the mindset and the skill set of your managers. And your managers beneath you are the ones that actually create the environment that affects the employees. They have a large impact on the customers. And they allow the customers and the employees to feel great and drive economic value to your business. And remember that these, talk, these people talk. And so what we found is you really can't get away with anything other than looking at the management experience as central to what you can control within this environment. Let me stop here and see if there's any questions, or comments, or anybody wants to run screaming from the room or anything like that. OK. So um, it's 9.34, and it's time for a break. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come back afterwards, and we're actually going to dig into what can you do to optimize, with some of the things you're going to learn today, the leadership within your club so that you create a better environment for the employees, do a better job of taking care of the customers, and have those groups drive way more value to your club and thereby be in much better shape. There's a formula to it. This is the part where I'm going to get into. There's things that work and things that you need to encourage. The other thing we're going to, I'm going to talk about a little bit is there's things that should never happen, should be stamped out at all costs and removed from your club. Okay? It's one of the biggest things that we found out is that you can't get there by just doing good things. There's a guy named Huggy Rao from Stanford. He's been studying scaling. And what he's found out is that organizations that really succeed, the biggest difference is not only do they do more good things, but they identify and they ruthlessly eliminate those things that are impediments or things that, that, that aren't consistent with where they're trying to go because those things have a five times weight to them. Good thing, you, do, you, could, you have to do five good things to make up for one negative thing, right? And so it's a really interesting, interesting deal. That's why I mentioned housekeeping, right? Those are the things that get in your way, is are, what are those, those negative things? And what's interesting about the negative things is a lot of times when people behave in a negative way, we judge them. And one of the things I'm going to talk to you about is using them as indicators to figure out what can we do better so that would never occur around here. And so that's one of the things that we'll, we'll get into when we get back. OK? All righty. I already covered this part. Um, but the customer satisfaction, the membership satisfaction, really huge deal. The uh, advocacy is that thing that creates the most power, which is the degree to which people are really all in um, you know, with their positive you know, kind of love of, of the club and of the, of the entire experience. And so, you know, creating that is really important. It's also one of the things that, um, you know, I think everybody needs to, to understand. So often we're focused on what do we need to do and what are the standards of service we're trying to create. Filling everybody in on the idea about what we're trying to create is really powerful and really important. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. We found a lot of times that there's really two parts that go into effective leadership. One is mindset, and the other part is skill set. And so what's, what's amazing is, is creating scale, creating something that really works, is more about spreading mindset than it is about creating skill set. And the people that, you, that work for you that you're employing to help manage, it's the same job for them especially, which is about creating mindset versus 
skill set. Of course, we, we can't fumble in terms of the things that we need to do, but it's that mindset that is going to be so important because it's going to lead to individual employees finding more purpose in what they're doing other than just being a waiter or just being an assistant golf pro or, or, or whatever. Um, so it's really kind of a key, and it's, it's that thing that you feel it when it's happening, and you can feel it when it starts going the wrong way, and it's kind of the most fickle and challenging, but it's really key. I, I want to talk a little bit about the, this kind of the, where that comes from. Um, so this is a little bit of a discussion I want you to, to have, um, and I'm going to talk a minute about, so what is the thing that creates mindset? Uh, when I grew up in the service business from this guy, Bob Small, he was amazing. He opened up so many five-star hotels. Bill Marriott didn't even want him to, to, to establish their first five-star hotel, which was the Rancho Las Palmas out in Palm Springs. Have you ever been to that property, the Rent Marriott Rancho Las Palmas? It's, not a, you know, it's, it's kind of a motor in. How that place became five-star, he just was like, we're going to make this place five-star. And, and he did it. And he did it a bunch of times in his career. And five-star is a really crazy thing in the, hospital, in the hotel business because... You never know when the inspectors are going to come. And when they do, they look at everything. Um, I mean, they, they, have, they have swabs, and they're looking in the toilets you know, for cleanliness. Cleanliness is huge, but it's like you can't miss, you can't miss a, a beat. It's, it's kind of like a five diamond in the, in the restaurant side. Really, really key. And um, so what, what's interesting is he used to always talk about, in order for us to hit five star, we need to have a... It was a bulletproof service heart, which was a service heart that was so strong that it could put up with guests, right? Because <laughs> guests are the people that, that put us off our game. It could put up, that, that the heart was so strong that it would stand up under pressure. And so what's interesting is through the research in the last couple of years, what we found out is there's this thing called intention that is really important. And so an intention is a deeply held attitude that will stand up under pressure. It's what Southwest creates. They have a value in their company called warrior spirit that they live. And what's interesting is the worse things get, the better they behave. They define their success with weather events and how they respond to when things don't go well, because that's when they know they're going to be judged. So it's not what's happening on a normal course of business, but at our worst moment, what judgments and experiences do people make, what experiences do they have, and what judgments do they make with our company? And so intentions is kind of the key. And so one of the questions I have for you, and I want you to turn in pairs for just a second, um, but I want you to think about what intentions do you expect from your present employees, your managers and your staff? What is the ironclad or bulletproof service heart look like? What are the intentions that you would expect? It's like an attitude. And then what are the intentions you fear? I'll talk about our business. We're about a $60 million company. We've got about 300 employees. We've been in business for 40 years. I'm one of the second generation owners. Um, and I really expect people to act like owners, to act like you know, I would in a, in, a, in a situation when they're dealing with a customer or with a colleague. I want people to take ownership, to not pass the buck, to make sure that every single time there's an opportunity to shine, that they lean into it, right? And if there's a problem, they jump up and down and we identify it. So, so I have a very high set of expectations. What I fear is that people will phone it in, right? They'll kick the can down the road, that they'll, they'll, they'll blame the situation on something outside their control and they won't take accountability and responsibility for the job 
and then a customer will feel it. So that's what I fear. So I want you to think for just a second with your present employees, what intentions do you expect from them and what intentions do you fear that they will develop or they have developed or you've seen them develop in other clubs, okay? So just in pairs, take just a couple seconds. What, ex what intentions do you expect and then what intentions do you fear people will develop, okay? We clear? Just take about two minutes to figure this one out. Just a couple people that will be willing to share. What, what are the intentions that you expect? There's probably things that you have found yourself saying to people again and again or leading through example. What are things that you expect, intentions that you expect from people? Loyalty? Loyalty, okay, trustworthy? Smile? Consistency? Smile, accountable, what else? Timeliness, service heart, productive, creative, engaged, driven, empowered. Cool. Big list, right? What are things that you fear? Complacency? Bitterness? Wow, okay, that's awesome. What else? Counterproductivity? Untrustworthy? Entitlement? Selfishness, sacred cows, negative, what's that? Sour core, what else? Undermining. Okay, complacency, bitterness, Got a f the uh, counterproductive. I, 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 I've smarted myself there. Untrustworthy. <laughs> um, selfish. Negative. Sour core. Undermining. Really bad. Just bad stuff here, right? Loyalty. Trustworthy. People that, that smile. They're accountable. Timeliness. Service heart, creative, people that are empowered, all these positive, you know, positive attitudes, positive attributes. Um, so when you look at these two lists, um, if I was to kind of throw out a categorization that, that this side, what you expect are people to engage in a, in a selfless manner meaning that they think about their coworkers, they think about their job, they think about the members they're serving, they think about the greater good before they think about themselves. And over here, we have a situation where people are actually thinking about themselves before they think about their coworkers or guests, you know, the organization and the value that they create. So like in broad categories, does that make sense? Okay, so selflessness versus selfishness, right? Have you ever had an employee that's been really selfless? 
and then all of a sudden something happened, and before you know, they, they started like behaving really selfless, selfishly. Yeah, yeah. Usually, it leads. It usually, it, it, sometimes it leads to the decline, right? So, so it's an interesting thing. Sometimes you hire somebody and they're the bad seed, but the big question is, how do intentions get created? How do you create them? And so this is what I'm going to talk to you. This is the part of the program this is like new. This is what we didn't know six or seven years ago. This is what, what the science shows us. So I'm going to walk through this framework, okay? And basically, employee work passion, which is the concept that we've been working with for about the last decade, is a persistent set of positive attitudes that people have that show up and they can withstand pressure, okay? Many of you have it. It's, it it's, it's what causes people to love the club business and to ascend and to stay and to continue to thrive is that you get, you get a certain value out of, you know, behaving well and creating staff that behaves well under pressure, right? It's one of the things that I miss when I, when I left the, the, uh, the whole hospitality business is that I miss a little bit of that because it, there, there's, a, there's a beauty to having a really challenging day in front of you and actually pulling it off with a team of people. I mean, there's just amazing camaraderie that, that, that comes from it. Um, and what's interesting is that what we found is that when people, I mentioned this before, people develop attitudes every day. Ever since I walked into the room an hour and a half ago, nobody really knew me. I was preceded by maybe what you had heard or by my, my dad. But what you've been doing the whole time is you've been acting like human beings. You've been, when you've been doing two things, you've been thinking. You've been thinking in response to things I've been saying. You've actually engaged in cognition, right? It's like either affirming or challenging previous beliefs you had. And you've also been having feelings. I've designed, I'm trying to create feelings in you. And what we do as human beings is a feeling is an emotional, it's, it's like a physiological disturbance, but it doesn't become really a feeling until we actually apply some kind of a label to it. Like fear is different than apprehension, which is different than excitement, which is different than, than apathy. Every feeling can, it shows up in our body, but, it, but we create a conclusion as human beings. And so you, th you have thoughts and feelings. And then what we do as human beings is we stop on a pretty regular basis and we make conclusions based on what we're thinking and what we're feeling. This is how people work. It's called the employee work passion process. The first thing that they do is people, human beings in work are making appraisals of what's happening at work. They appraise, who am I working for? What is the organization, the club, or the business that I'm working for? And what's my opinion of it? Is this a good, solid, trustworthy place, or is it not, right? The second thing is, who do I work for? My direct manager, the person that could fire me or the person that hired me, the person that supervises me, that controls rewards and recognition. What is my relationship with that person like? The third one is, what about my coworkers? Do I feel like we're a team that's, that's aligned around a common purpose, or do I feel like there's a bunch of politics going on? Do, does it feel like high school? Do I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the only one that really cares about quality around here? What, what's happening within my coworkers? Do I have an enemy at work? Is there somebody that's getting in my way, somebody that I hate to see, right? And then the last thing is about the job itself. What do I do every day? What's expected of me? And what are my thoughts and feelings about my job? What people do is they, they're, they're constantly thinking this stuff through. And what they do is they make a conclusion, a sense of well-being. And write this down. Human beings, in order for them to be 
successful in a way that they can actually engage in selfless behavior. They have to feel safe physically and emotionally. They have to feel valued. And they have to feel useful. This is your lever. This is your key is people want to produce positive results. They want to be part of a winning team. They want to do a good job. But at the same time, they have to feel safe and they really, really need to feel valued. So what that means is, is that people start behaving with bitterness or counterproductive or untrustworthy or entitled or selfishly. They're doing so in response to the conclusions they made around the company they're working for, the manager they're working for, the coworkers, and, and, and the job in and of itself. And so what we used to do is people would evaluate people that weren't cutting mustard, that person has a bad attitude or whatever, and we would make a character judgment around that person as if they were doing something wrong versus what we've been encouraging people to look at now is what's causing that great person who has succeeded elsewhere to behave in that way. And the responsibility sits within our organization and are the things that are in our control and out of our control. And so what's really interesting about, about the idea is, is how come one manager, one organization can get incredible behavior, loyalty, commitment, honesty, great things out of one person, and that same person turns up in another area, and all of a sudden they're stealing from the place. And, and it happens. Now the first, the first component is, and this is really important, you gotta hire the right people. Okay, And in a type labor market, there is incredible, a lot of times you feel like you have to settle for people. Right? Has anybody ever been in that position? Yeah. And one of the big questions is, are you better to go understaffed or are you better to hire somebody that's a potential loser? Right? Or a demonstrated loser or somebody that's not going to cut, cut, you know, cut mustard and you know it. Right? Really important that you get the right people in there. That's a whole other seminar. Right? It's a whole other seminar, but I can help in that area because there's science around it. You know, there's a, and I'll give you a quick hint. Okay? There's four things that people look at when they hire. Number three, and these things, the four things that actually correlate with success. Number three is prior related job experience. Has somebody actually done something similar and they've succeeded in a similar environment? Okay? That really matters. Can somebody succeed in the club business? Right? And, the, and then the, the, uh, the fourth thing is, is the culture fit. Do they, feel, do they have the potential to feel connected to the culture? And is the work that they're being hired to do, is it inherently valuable to them? Okay? So those things we look at all the time. We do interviews. We try to make sure we don't get a bad apple in. But what's interesting is the two things that people don't usually know how to get to. Um, one of them is, is called work attitude. And the second one is locus of control. Okay? So what is work attitude? Work attitude is a pervasive pattern of people's love for, need to, and desire to work and to work hard that persists across an array of job experiences. It's, it's oftentimes culturally imparted. It's imparted in their families. It's, it's people that need to, want to, and like to work and work hard. Okay? So there's questions, and I can give you some resources afterwards to ask, is this somebody that really likes to work or do they have to work? Is it somebody that needs to work or is it somebody that works because they got to pay the bills? Okay? You can find them out. And what's interesting is it's really important to hire people 
that need to and want to work versus people that don't. It's one of the biggest complaints that people have is I can't seem to get these people. It can be taught, but it's better to be found. Okay? It's one of the problems in a tight labor market. The second one is called locus of control. And this is, anybody ever heard the term locus of control? Sometimes called sense of accountability. It's the degree to which a person believes that they have within their own selves the capacity to affect their own outcomes and their own success. It's people that take accountability and responsibility when confronted with obstacles in their life. And they're people that own it and persevere or people that wither and they become victims. Okay? Really, really key. There's a 50-50 split in this country. Of the 330 million people, it's about 50-50. And what's interesting is you can find those people and you can also hire the ones that don't have it. And there's some questions that will get you there. One of the questions that's really interesting is if you ask somebody with an internal locus of control and a strong work attitude, tell me about a time that you were wronged at work. Right? They will have difficulty talking about a situation and selling out the people that did it without talking about how it made them stronger. Okay? If you ask somebody about a time where they got screwed or where they were wronged at work or tell me about something that was really bad in your life and they start telling you the story and, and you get the sense that they are a victim to things, don't hire them. Don't, because it's really hard to turn that around. And in fact, one thing you can do when you go back on your yellow pad, just think about your entire staff and you think about who are the people that own their lives and who are the people that are victims to their wives? And put them down on the two sides of a column. And you know who they are? Because you don't really know until you know people. Identify those two columns. And, what you, what, and, and when the people that, that, that are victims, share them with the competition. If there's a chance, let them go. Don't, 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 do, don't bend over backwards to hang on to them. Right? But the people that you feel like are owners, do what you can to make sure that they actually stay. It's a, it, and that, what's interesting is people that have an internal locus of control are 40% more likely to succeed. So there's a certain science to it. And what makes it really hard is when we're talking about frontline staff, you know, a lot of times it's hard to figure out. And a lot of times people are frontline staff for a reason because of what's happened in their life and what they're doing. But it's really, really key that you're hiring the right people. Here's the other piece. Good management can turn people towards taking a sense of accountability and can nurture and grow that, right? And bad management can kill it. And there's nothing worse than taking somebody that owns their wife and putting a bad manager on top of them and having them exert the wrong behaviors and killing that fire in them. Because what you've done is you've, you've ruined the impact that can come from that person. So you, you got to start with a decent raw product, right? And um, there's a company called Hireology. If anybody wants some information, I can share it with you. But there's questions to ask in interviews that can get to internal locus of control and also a, this, this idea of a work attitude. Really, really key. So, so that's a really key thing. But sense of well-being, regardless of that, is really key. Because what the science tells us is that people's opinion of their workplace, their manager, their coworkers, and their job comes up on a regular basis, am I safe? Do I feel valued? And do I feel like I'm useful? Okay, Really, really important. Because what happens from there is that leads to intentions, to positive behaviors, and to results. And let me show you the intentions that we look at. So these intentions, these are money. This is where your money goes. Because when somebody is a really 
engaged employee, there's five things that they do that's significantly different than everybody else. The first is that they apply their discretionary energy on the job. They take the job forward to its conclusion. They might pass out at the end of the shift, but they use all the energy that they have that day to make things happen. Number two, they intend to, they intend to perform. They know what good performance looks like, and they have an intention to perform to their best ability with other people that day. They walk in, and they are prepared to work hard versus slide. Okay? They have the intent to endorse. They endorse the club. They endorse the management. They're in. They don't sell the place out. They see it as part of them, so they endorse the organization. Um, they engage in positive organization citizenship which means they cooperate. They cooperate with their coworkers. They would never do things that would actually detract from another person's ability to get the job because they work in a different department or a different unit. Right? They would never fight. They, 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 they cooperate with other people. Um, and they intend to remain. They intend to stay with the organization as long as they can. And so what the reacher says, as soon as people start looking for a job, they start to phone it in. You know, as, as soon as people are starting to phone it in, they don't perform as hard, right? They just don't. They stop. They start seeing themselves as leaving. So they don't cooperate with other people as much. They certainly aren't going to endorse the organization that they're leaving from. And they stop using their discretionary energy. So these are the five things that actually really matter when we look at positive job-related behavior and positive organization-related behavior. So the key is on this next slide, and I hate to do it, but I'm going to show you some stats right, to show you that I didn't just make this up. So there they are, intent to perform above average level, intent to use discretionary energy, intent to remain with the organization, intent to endorse the organization, and the intent to be an organization citizen. By the way, I'll send the slides to anybody who wants them. If you just give me a card at the end, or actually send me an email. Um, so I kind of made this point. Employees do not feel safe, valuable, and useful or unable to behave in a selfless manner. So this is like the big thing I want you to get. I didn't know this in 1987, 1993. You know, Jack Welsh, like get rid of the bottom 10%, all that kind of stuff. Here, here's the story. If people don't feel safe, valued, and useful, they're likely to go here, and they can't go here. And if they do go here, it exacts a tremendous cost. And so the key is, what is the formula for causing people to feel safe and valued and useful, right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a cultural thing as much as anything. Um, and so I'm going to talk about the, the linchpin or the most important aspect of it. And then we'll talk about a little bit about how you can do it. Um, so here's what we found. Just like people are selfless or selfish, Right? So there's two kinds of managers. Two kinds of managers. There's managers that are perceived as other-oriented, and there's managers who are perceived as self-oriented. Okay? So when I had my first management job, I was a supervisor in the stewarding department at the Intercontinental Hotel in San Diego in 1984. I worked in a dishwashing department, 75 dishwashers. Right? Big operation. Francisco Wheelock, my first manager ever. I was a sophomore, between my freshman and sophomore 
year in hotel school when I did an internship, and he'd seen us coming before, right? I got the job because my dad's buddy owned the hotel, one of those kind of, kind of things, right? So I show up, you know, all ready to go. And Francisco took me to lunch the first day in the cafeteria, and he said, Scott, I'm excited to have you here. I need you to be really careful while you're here this summer in terms of the way that you interact with my staff. Right? He goes, the way that you treat people becomes dinner conversation in their homes at night. The way you treat people becomes dinner conversations in their home tonight. I don't want people talking about you at the dinner table. I don't want them talking about me at the dinner table. He goes, I want them to be away from work. He goes, I don't want them talking about what a jerk you were or how demanding you were or whatever. Now, I expect high standards, but at the same time, I don't want the way you treat people to show up in people's dinnertime conversations. So I never forgot that lesson. And what's interesting is a big part of leadership is, is that, is how can you train your managers so that they are not part of the dinnertime conversation? Because if, if people are treating people in such a way that causes people to feel like they're being beaten up or they're, being, they're unprepared or they're not being supported or all those sorts of things, then what ends up happening is it becomes a negative situation. Now, what great leaders are able to do is are able to drive people to higher levels of performance than they ever thought possible, while at the same time maintaining this idea that they're safe, valued, and useful. So that's the trick. That's what the great manager does, is they get people to work as hard as they've ever worked in spirit to driving a great experience at the club without feeling beaten up along the way, but actually feeling involved, challenged, engaged, and like their purpose is being animated. And so the difference in leadership is the other-oriented leaders are able to get it to come out of people versus having to like do it in a way that's more of an imposed way. And so what, what we found is that other focused leaders are the, are the ones that are able to create these conditions in people. And you guys talked about trustworthiness up here and a bunch of other things. Um, you know, smile, loyalty, trustworthy, all these sort of great behaviors, these are the behaviors that come from leaders who have like an ironclad leadership heart, which is that I'm going to get this crew together and we're going to achieve great things together. We're going to hold hands. We're going to achieve great success, but we're going to do it in a way that doesn't diminish people and that actually causes people to feel better versus worse about what they've done. Now, it's tricky, right? But it's, but it's really key. So this is what the research tells us. So I'm going to show you some stats. I'm sorry, but I have to do it. But here's, here's the way it works, right? So other-oriented versus self-oriented leaders, OK? This is a measure of people's feelings related to work, the things that I mentioned. Here's the story. This number, 0.47 positive, 0 0.32, 0 0.57, 0 0.44, 0 0.49. Those are, those are statistical correlations. And those numbers are like a statistician jumping up and down and saying, this matters. And so what, what's really interesting is the degree to which employees trust and feel like their manager has their back, right? They will, there's an incredible correlation against the discretionary energy, the intent to perform, the intent to endorse, the intent to stay, and the intention to engage in positive organization citizenship behaviors, which is cooperating in the organization, okay? And so what happens is great leaders, they're able to create these things in people. And what's cool is when you create those things, people work harder than you could ever imagine, right? And what poor leaders do, 
leaders that actually people don't trust is they come over here, there's not a single correlation positive against any of these things, but there's very strong negative correlations against intent to stay and the intent to endorse. So that number goes up there. And so what that means is, is when somebody works for a manager who belittles them or they don't trust, when it, what they do is they, you don't get any of the good stuff and they start looking for a job and they stop saying positive things about the organization that they work for and its leadership. And they're not shy about it, right? What happens when American Airlines is suffering from a problem and you're on a plane and there's an issue? And when they get really cranky, they sell the company out, they sell their colleagues out, they'll sell anybody out they can, they'll put you in your place, right? Because it's all about them at that moment. They're not a represent, they, they distance themselves from the organization. Where a place like Southwest, they own it. And they don't allow themselves to go to that level, that they stay cool under pressure. And so what's amazing when you go to a really well-run place, how they can create it, and if you're struggling, how these are the issues. So this is the, the issue. And what the biggest challenge is, is how do we get leaders to not do this while at the same time driving high levels of performance? That's the trick. So quick, the answers you already have, I'm going to have, this is the last little discussion we're going to do. I want you to think about either yourself or the best managers that you have or that you've worked with in the past. What are the mindset and behaviors that your best people do naturally? And I'm going to give you about two minutes for this because it should come to the top of your head. What do your best people do that's different? How do you see them behave? You know, what kind of things do they say? What kind of mindset do they present? And then the, the managers that you've had trouble with, or you might even think about where am I struggling? Where is turnover high? Where is productivity a problem? Which outlet or which issue? You know, you might think about what's that manager doing over there? What kind of mindset are they communicating? And what kind of behaviors are they engaged in? So I want you to just think about the best people that, you, that work for you right now or that you've seen and think about the ones that have been problematic or the ones where you have performance problems in those areas. And I want you to just think for a second about how those people behave, what they do differently, okay? Just for a couple seconds, because the, what the research says is the evidence for your success is inside of your organization. You just need to identify and do more of it. And you need to identify the things that's not working. You need to stop doing that and maybe change some mindsets or change some people out if you really want to achieve success. So there's, there's some kind of an answer in your club already that you can tap into, okay? So take about two or three minutes to, to work on this piece here. All right, let me pull you back out of those conversations. I got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of time pressure because uh, I need to be down about quarter of number one. And then number two, my wife said, this is so funny, she's like, you can barely clear your throat in three minutes so I can get, get talking here. Um, but, but we. Uh, I want to get just a couple quick responses. What are the things, first of all, that, that what's the mindset and the behaviors that your, your best managers consistently engage in or do? Just shout them out. Yes. Yeah. So they want to be part of the family. They want to be invested. They want to be part of the whole culture, the whole environment. That's a, that's a huge deal. What, what else? Lead by example. They lead by example. Beautiful. 
to take a pause and, and seek wisdom and counsel from, from others when there's a problem versus having a knee-jerk reaction to it? Yeah, so they, they take a pause when there's an issue and they receive counsel, wisdom. They don't just react. Really huge deal. That, there's a piece in the research around that is that great leaders, they have a balance between action and reflection. And, so, and you know, at the end of a tough shift, they'll actually sit back and say, what happened? You know, and they'll really think about it. And they maybe talk about it with people. And, they, and if they need to, they'll apologize. But there's a, there's a balance between action and reflection that they, they engage in. What else? They're authentic. They're authentic. Absolutely. Yes? Humble. Yep. Absolutely. Humility is a weird one. It's, it's like it's, a, it's one of those big factors that, that, that comes into um, one of the smallest of things that make great leaders great and bad leaders great bad is this is humility versus, you know, I'm in charge, I have the answer, you know, versus it being centered around me. What else? High energy. High energy. Yep. In, engaged. Continued growth and education. I mean, I, I'll fill you in on, if you're managing people, you're a professional manager, right? That's how, that's how it goes. And if you're a professional manager, then working on your profession is really important. What's interesting in this field, I know, I know the, the stats from, uh, from the restaurant industry, you know, is at least in, in California, um, the restaurant industry is the number one industry where people can actually get a job in management that didn't go to college or that didn't go to college for it. I mean, very few people... You know, some people wake up and, and, and when they're little kids, I'm going to be a club manager. But a lot of times people find themselves in that path, you know, with a, and um, so what else? What about other ones? They improvise. Yep. They empathize and improvise. Yep. They can do positive attitude. They encourage. Caring. Trustworthy. What about the other side, managers that you maybe had an issue with that engage in either spreading the wrong mindset or behaviors? What are the things that you've observed? Maybe in other clubs you worked in. Hopefully, hopefully not in your staff, but, but I think things that are problematic. Narcissistic. Rather identify problems and come up with solutions, yes. Disconnected from people. Disconnected from people? Complain about other managers. Complain about other managers? Caustic, selfish, selfish. hypocritical, fake. fake. What else? They don't maintain the, maintain the standards when they're unsupervised. Yep. Lack of integrity. They don't take time to listen to the staff. Yeah, perfect. So what's interesting about it is it's especially tricky with managers because they're an extension of your work. They're an extension of the club. They represent to the club, you know, the kind of power structure. And, and if, there's a, if there's a real disconnect, it's a problem. Now, one of the things that, that I, I, uh, we believe, and uh, there's another seminar for it, but there's also all kinds of resources that you can, you can tap into, is that many people that get into management, they haven't had you know, proper training to actually understand mindset and skill set. In fact, most haven't. Most people in their first time management position, they don't get training until long after they've actually been in that job. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And what's happening you know, right now is it's kind of this big issue. Like there's about 50 million millennials in the workforce right now. About 12 million millennials are managers, right? And what's interesting about first-time management jobs is most people fail to achieve positive results in their first management job. I did. I did more damage than good in the beginning. I was, I was a you know, college kid. I thought I knew what was going on, and I, and I, it, I struggled, and I, and I got beat up for it. And I learned, and I adapted. Um, and one of the interesting questions you should ask is to what degree have we taken enough time to especially reinforce the specific mindset that is required to achieve the success that we need to have at our club. And so, you know, mindset is, is something that's, you know, kind of falls at your feet in terms of responsibility. So one of the things I'm going to challenge with you to leave today is to do a little bit of the thought about mindset and to think about to what degree are you reinforcing and making explicit and specific the kind of mindset that you believe in and that you want. And what's interesting is, is that the, the hardest thing about being you know, in charge of being a leader is that you actually have to act like a second grade teacher. And you have to make sure that it's crayon simple. And you need to say it again and again and again and again. And you need to be an example. And you need to create stories around the positive aspects. And the, when the things go against what you know to be right, you have to stop. And you've got to intervene. And if you do it right, you intervene in a small way and you turn somebody around, but you can't let things go. And it's the biggest difference between organizations, especially it takes a thousand little touch points to make a really great club run. And the ones that, that run really well, the culture and the management, they would never allow behaviors that work against. And they always encourage behaviors that work towards the vision that you're, you're trying to create. So, so I guess my hope you know, when you leave today is maybe a little bit of renewed anxiety, but also, you know, focus to know that, that um, you know, the, the mindset of your management has everything to do with the condition of your employees. And what's going to end up happening is if we want to create loyalty, trustworthy, smiling, you know, really connected, empowered, you know, employees, all these different components, that, that it's not going to happen Naturally, it's going to happen through really positive efforts of you and your management staff to be focused both on the mindset and the skill set that's required. And that if you start to see this kind of stuff going on, it's generally the result of one of two things. One is you hired the wrong person. And it's real easy to do that. The other thing is that person is somehow creating reactions to the company or the organization, to the management or to their coworkers or to the job itself that's causing them to feel not safe, not valued, not useful, and then they're going to engage in those, selfless, those selfish behaviors. And so, it, so what's interesting about it, and, and I've kind of changed my tune over the last couple of years, is, is you kind of get what you deserve in terms of the way that people are behaving. And one of the things that's really interesting is that a lot of times we think about external factors or those things that we can't control. Um, and back here to the, to the beginning, oh, where it is, you know, we start looking at, we start thinking about the staffing and labor requirements, the aging membership, the climate, governance, all these sorts of things as reasons why are things that are getting in our way to actually moving forward. But what's, what's really true is the only thing you can really control is who, who you put on your staff, 
And then what kind of mindset do you create within that staff? And what kind of management are they receiving? And what's the mindset and the skill set that those, those people are engaged in, right? So, um, so, this, so what we've just found over time is, is that it's, there's a, my grandmother is so funny, she rings in my head all the time. She always used to say certain things like, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? And what we found out to be true is that that's actually true. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't actually expect extraordinary heart and commitment and great intentions and great behavior from your, from your staff to take care of your guests that cause the guests to actually feel great about what they're experiencing, to be really loyal and to say positive things about the organization if they're not actually working for management who's designed to create those things. And the, and the crazy thing is, is that left to their own devices, generally, some people understand and lead by example and are really good, but there's a large number of managers who, under pressure, they go the wrong way. And they go the way based on some ideas that have been taught over the years. Maybe you've taught them some ideas. Maybe I have. But some of the old ideas about pressure you know, and fear and accountability and standards and a lot of the kind of top-down stuff has turned out to be it's a little tough. And in the best clubs, what, what they do is the vision and the values are so strong that they hold the manager and the board and everybody accountable to behaving at a better at a better level, and so what I found in clubs, I, you guys talked about governance, right? You know, when when there's a problem, it's generally because there's a lack of clarity that people have around the vision for the club, you know, its purpose, the values, and when when bad things start happening, it's usually because people at the board start behaving in a self-serving manner, and they start making decisions in their own interest, or the interest of their constituency, and before you know it, they take the place down the the wrong path. And you're the working professional who sees it happening, right? Um, I, I work for a club that, that uh, I mean, I, I used to be a member of a club. And um, you know, I, I, I witnessed a great club go down the tubes you know, with like 80 people in the same room saying, oh, yeah, we should add nine holes. And we should integrate that nine holes with the other nine holes. And they, did, they made all these decisions over like a, like a weekend. And, you know, and, and it just it was absolutely the wrong decision economically from a market standpoint, from an overhead standpoint, from, from a product, the whole thing. And it all kind of, it all kind of fell apart. Um, so it, what's, what's interesting, and my dad always said, is, is no matter what, when you look in organizations and when things are going really, really well, in its essence, it's always a leader. And when things aren't going well, you can always point to figure out what's going on. People will point to external factors, right? But it always comes down to a leader or the leadership team that makes the difference. Um, so let me stop right there and see if there's any questions as I've challenged you today. Questions for clarity? Anybody have any like, yeah, but? Because there's a lot of yeah, buts. Yes. The formula for all in is an actual formula. People make, they look at 12 things, and those things affect the way that they show up to work and the attitudes that they create, OK? One of them is, who do they work for? 
okay? And the best companies, they have great clarity around their vision, the value proposition they're creating for their customers and or their members. They have, you know, a clear culture. You know, it's, 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 very, it's very clear when you go to a, you know, a, a, you know, a place like, I'll, I'll name ones that are outside of this area just so I don't pick an A, but, but if you go to a Oakmont or an Oak Hill, you know, even Firestone, which I've been to, which is a uh, um, Club Corp runs them, you know, which is anomalous and it's an amazing, an amazing place. Um, you know, I've been lucky to go, go to a place like Pine Valley or you go to the New York Yacht Club. Any of those places, the vision is so clear. Even some of the newer clubs, the vision is so clear when you walk in that everybody steps into that kind of that position. So that's one thing is who do you work for? You can also create amazing success if you don't happen to be one of those premier places, but you, you sit somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Um, and you can have amazing success even if you're on the bargain end you know, within, within a market. Because it's not so much the quality of the products and services and what you are, but it's like it's the service that's, you know, that's created. So people have a big impression with who do they work for. But then from there, it's who do they work for as their manager? And then what, and how does it work within their peers? The peers have an incredible influence. And those two things are basically up to, you know, at your feet, which is the culture that you're created. And then the last thing is people make a, make a judgment around their job. And mostly the stuff around their job is, do they have the skills, the tools, and the ability to get the job done? Or are they actually vulnerable when they deal with the member or with the customer? Because they don't have the skills or ability to get the job done, right? Really hard to be a waiter when the chef's back there burning steaks, right? Really, really hard. And then the other thing that's really hard is sometimes it's really hard to be working a club when, with members. Because <laughs> members can be really rough on people, you know, if they're not being kind of treated properly. And so if you're put in a position where all of a sudden you're dealing with a member who's cranky because of something that's happened, that can really get in the way. And so the formula is really looking at those four different things. Um, one of the things you can do um, is you can, you can do some assessment around it. I know you guys have all done it, employee satisfaction stuff. Um, you know, we have one, but, but doing an engagement survey really matters. Um, the three things that the best companies look at, we've been kind of checking this out on a regular basis, is they work on the triangle. Is the best organizations ask their guests more often around every experience around what's working and what's not working for them, and they take that stuff seriously, and they make decisions based on improving things, you know, so they can improve things and make things as, as, as good as they can for the members. And they also make tough decisions sometimes to stop doing things that aren't working or that are never going to work. Okay, I was talking to somebody at dinner last night. It's really hard to continue to do things if you're not going to make money doing them. It's just really hard. If you've got a big you know, hole, it's really, really hard to look at that. So at some point, you've got to begin to look at the, at the formula about what you're offering. But what you do offer, it better be you know, asking the customers their opinion really, really matters. And not just through the big survey at the end of the year, but it's really asking people on a much more regular basis about how was that breakfast, you know, how was that tournament, how was that meal, how was that special event when you came in, the personal touch, the asking the people, the following up. And through the act of asking, they'll actually feel like you care more. Right? So that's a really key thing. The other one is asking your employees on a regular basis. How many of you are, are doing employment surveys that are actually you know, cut by department? You know, Really important to understand what are the pockets of satisfaction, engagement, and people are really turned on, and where 
are the areas in the in the in the in your organization that are in bad shape. You know, one cleaver throwing chef can really raise hell in your operation. Okay, and I know it's hard to get a good chef, but no matter how hard it is to get a good chef, you can't have one that's throwing cleavers, driving fear, creating all kinds of problems down there. You know, one person that's yelling at people in the cart barn. You know, it's all it takes. Um, you know, so it's it's a really so you just have to watch out for those components. That's another part of the thing, and and the other one. Uh, so it's looking at the customer on a regular basis, way more often, looking at the experience that the employees are having, listening to it in a way that you're trying to create a really solid experience, and then looking at that operational management component. That triangle is key. So Marriott Vacation Club is one of my one of my clients. You know, they run a great operation. They, a guy that I went to Cornell with is the second in charge there, and they relentlessly look at employee satisfaction or employee engagement per facility and per department. Customer satisfaction, they, they evaluate every single opportunity, even when somebody goes through a timeshare presentation. They're relentless to make sure that people didn't feel like there was a greasy, overly pressurized sales program that went on in place, right? And then they're, then they're looking at the, at the, at the, the uh, evaluation of the management effectiveness from the employee standpoint. And that triangle, they look at again and again and again. And what's amazing is when they start having a, a financial problem and they look at that, there's always a connection. And there's usually a leader involved. And whenever they look at an operation that runs better, it's weird. That manager seems to be doing a better job of creating the environment that's causing the employees to be happier. They're doing a better job of taking care of the customers. The customers are happier. They're buying more, and they're happier when they're there. They're making the employees' job better. Good things are happening, and it makes the manager's job easier. So they're just, they're, they're, that's the whole deal. And so kind of your job, ultimately, is to make sure that that linchpin of success is, is in place. So it's about time for me to, to, uh, to end. I guess the final piece I'm going to bring you back to in the beginning here, and my hope for today, because I just love the, tr the, the kind of the trick and the things that are required, is really, really, really key that you have the right vision, culture, and strategies in place inside of your club. Working with a board, sometimes that can be challenging, but the quality of who you're trying to become and the reputation you're trying to create and the vision for your club, whatever wherever you are in your market is really important. Once you have that, how can you actually communicate it down to the person mowing the greens, cleaning the shoes, bussing the table so that they understand it, okay? In the best clubs, no matter where they are, the people at the front line, they understand why they're there and they, they realize they're a part of a team that's trying to create a memorable experience for their members so that the members are really happy, they bring their families, they spend more time there, they become these positive attitudes, and they say all kinds of good things about the club, and good things happen. Everybody gets it. So that's the first piece is do you have that and do you communicate it? The second big linchpin is are your managers, are you prepared to do the right things that actually take care of the customer or the, or the, the, the member or the guest and actually create the positive environment for these two people? Because the chickens talk. The employees, their experience gets felt by the customers, and the customer's experience gets felt by the employees, and the tremendous value happens right here, and the employees and the, and the customers and the members are the ones that drive the real economic value up to the top. And so the only thing you can really control in the middle 
is the quality of the leadership that you're putting, putting in place. Um, and what's interesting about it is it's not all about training. It's not even partially about training. It's mostly about shifting the amount of time that you're focused with your management around talking about the, the mindset that you're trying to create within the club. The mindset, you know, which that's like that example of, of the dinner table conversation. What's the mindset that you're trying to create and continue we talking about that again and again and again? And what's interesting, when people get the mindset, they're smart, the skills follow. When people really understand that what, what they're really trying to create, it's really easy for them to be more encouraging and more hopeful and more positive with people. And it's also easier for them to eliminate a bad apple to say, we can't have that. We can't have that bad apple. And so the bad apple, you need to either turn it around, and maybe we haven't got a job of explaining, or we need to remove the bad apple before they spoil the whole barrel. Okay. So what's interesting is when the mindset is spread, which I know you guys believe in your club, then what's able is the behaviors begin to cascade. Okay. So with that, um, I'm at time. Um, if anybody ha has any questions, I'm going to hang around for, for a while. If you ever want to talk more about it, I can, um, if you can leave my contact information. You know, I'm here because I love you know, to talk about this stuff. I also love the club business. Um, and, uh, and I think it's just an amazing you know, kind of opportunity, which never goes away, to create a magnificent experience that creates a lot of value through turning a staff on about, the, about serving and developing that ironclad service heart. Thanks for listening. This has been Education Elevated on the FLCMA Podcast Network. Download other episodes on a myriad of different topics for anyone in your club or organization, regardless of their job title or description. We'll see you next time.